Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome back to the 60 Feet, 6 Inches LSU podcast. So we are here. It is officially regional time in Baton Rouge with LSU getting chosen as a host site, as you know by now, and a top eight national seed. LSU was given the five seed by the NCAA baseball committee. They are matched up with the Lexington Regional, so the University of Kentucky coming in at a 12 seed. So a quick reminder for all those that are new to the podcast or new to the YouTube channel, I'm not sure where you've been all year, but thank you for joining me here at Regional Time, the most important time of year. You can find the 60 Feet, 6 Inches LSU podcast on all major audio platforms, Apple, Google, Spotify, and the rest. You can also find me on YouTube at the 60 Feet, 6 Inches YouTube channel, and also on Twitter, the account is at 60FT6IMLSUPod. Look, if you missed the last episode, you missed a ton as I went live with a regional breakdown from a live stream perspective. I had several guests on the show. I had Alex Day from the Weekend Rotation podcast. I had Jim Cross from the In Off the Bench podcast. I had Matt Beard from the Spittin' Seeds 247 account. And then I had Mr. LSU, my guy, Stephen Miller, on that as well. So look, that is still available and up on the YouTube channel if you want to go back and uh, see what we dropped on uh, Monday night, Memorial Day night. And it's also available in podcast form as well. So we really talked about the regional from a big picture side of things, right? How did LSU come out of uh, the SEC tournament? How did we think they were hitting it and pitching it? What are uh, some of our preferred lineups? Who we would like to see start game one in the regional? And then we kind of got into the opponents a little bit as well and just kind of gave a national picture with regards to what did we think the hardest regional was and maybe who are the some upsets or surprises we could see coming out of those regionals heading into super regionals. But y'all make sure to go and check that out. So in this podcast, I'm going to give you a quick overview of LSU's three opponents in the Baton Rouge Regional, which starts off on Friday afternoon. And then finally, stick around as I'm going to tell you why LSU is going to beat Sam Houston State in the regional final. So let's get into it. Really quick, let me give you some LSU key stats before we move into the four seed, the Tulane Green Wave. LSU comes into the regional with a record of 43 and 15. They are 19 and 10 in SEC play, and they finished one and two in the SEC tournament, as y'all know by now. LSU had an RPI of five. They finished this season with a 311 team batting average, which is good for 16th in the country. They have 117 home runs as a team, which is good for fourth in the country. They remain second in the country in on-base percentage. They're fifth in the country in slugging percentage. And they have seven players with double-digit home runs with Travinsky and Morgan knocking on the door. Potentially could see nine LSU baseball players with double-digit home runs. And I don't think that's been done since I played, I believe, in 1998. LSU is also fourth in scoring at 9.3 runs per game, so fourth in the country in scoring. So when you look at it, when you take a step back, I know they had some offensive struggles against Arkansas and Texas A&M, but they are still one of the top five offenses in the country, bar none. The statistics prove that out over a, let's see, a 58-game schedule. In terms of ERA and the pitching staff, LSU has the 45th uh, best ERA in the country when you look at about 295 Division I baseball teams. They have a 4.64 ERA. In terms of fielding, they are fielding it at a 975 clip. And then when you look at recent form, right, LSU is only – 7-7 seven seven in their last 14 games, and that dates back to losing the Auburn series. They lost the Mississippi State series. They took two out of three from Georgia, and they stumbled a little bit in the SEC tournament. <clears throat> Another statistic in terms of pitching on the national landscape, LSU is eighth in terms of giving up the fewest amount of hits per nine innings pitched. 
and they are second in the country in terms of strikeouts of opposing hitters per innings pitched. And as you can imagine, Paul Skeens continues to lead the country in terms of strikeouts, and it's not even close. Cruz on the year, he's hitting 420, which is good for seventh in the country. He has 58 walks, which is good for 10th in the country, and he is still second in on-base percentage in the United States. Tommy Tanks, he is third in the country in RBIs with 91. And the funny thing about that is, remember, he missed games earlier in the year with a shoulder injury. He has played three or four less games than the, guy, the two guys ahead of him. So he is only three or four RBIs off those guys' pace. As I mentioned, Skeens leads the country in strikeouts. He leads the country in strikeouts per nine innings pitched. And he is third in the country when we look at strikeout to walk ratio. And he is fourth in the country at ERA at a 1.89. And then finally, Paul Skeens is sixth in the country and hits allowed per nine innings pitched. Just an amazing, fabulous year. Obviously, I think he's going to be an All-American. Just what a year for um, the transfer from Air Force. Paul Skeens has been everything we thought he would be and even more, really, when you look at it. We take a step back. All right, let's get into it. The four seed, the Tulane Green Wave. Look, they come into this sucker. Man, they snuck in, right? They were they are actually the worst uh, team to ever get into a regional. Tulane is 19 and 40 on the year. They went eight and 16 in the AAC. They finished seventh out of eight teams in that conference. And when you think about that conference, they have the likes of East Carolina, who's in a regional, um, Houston who had a chance to get in one as well. And then Wichita State made some noise early in the year. And if you're old enough to remember, like myself, Wichita State was a powerhouse in the 80s and the 90s. Tulane got into the regional by winning the AAC tournament. They beat ECU in the finals, and they did it out of the loser's bracket. And in that tournament run, Tulane scored 10 runs, 11 runs, 8 runs, 11 runs, 8 runs. So they have been on a heater at the plate. So I'm sure their confidence will come in to the box sky high with those runs they have produced in the AAC tournament. Tulane's RPI is at 157. So as I told you a second ago, there's about 295, give or take, Division I baseball teams in the country. When you look at hitting, Tulane is hitting 250 as a team. They have hit 81 home runs on the year. Their on-base percentage is 364. That is ranked 223rd out of 295 teams in the country. When you look at their pitching staff, they have a team ERA of seven, which is 231st in the country. They have a team batting average of 292, and they give up 10.49 hits per nine innings pitched. So that is 209. So quite a contrast to some of those stats that I rolled out with regards to LSU. But as you can imagine, you're 19 and 40 for a reason. When you look at their fielding percentage, they're fielding 971 on the year. Now, getting into a couple of their key hitters and their key pitchers. And the good thing about the regional, I don't have to highlight all their key pitchers. I'm just going to highlight one or two guys and maybe one or two guys at the bullpen for each team. So really, these kind of team capsules are only going to take about five to seven minutes per team. And I'll spend a lot of time at the end on my regional prediction. So but back to the, the green wave. Tulane uh, really has a lot of local flavor, not just obviously New Orleans, but they have several Baton Rouge area products that are going to be looking to make an impact in Alex Box for that 2 p.m. start time on Friday. First up is leadoff hitter Brady Abair from Catholic High. He leads the team with a 304 average. He has a 438 on base percentage, which leads the team as well. And then finally, he has 12 stolen bases on the year, which leads the team. So Brady Abair leads the team in average. 
on base percentage and stolen bases. He is a massive key for this team in terms of how they're going to get going. He's going to lead off the game. And uh, it's going to be key for whoever starts game one uh, for LSU on Friday afternoon to keep Brady Bear off the bases to start the top of the first inning. Another good hitter for the Green Wave is Brady Margette. He is hitting 302, which is second on the team. He has nine home runs and 30 RBIs, uh, hitting in the three-hole or anywhere from three to five. Um, he hit third against uh, third early in the year and some recent box scores. He's hit fifth, but that is my guy, B. Lamb, Brennan Lambert from Catholic High. Shout out to him and his parents. I coached him when he was little. I have nothing to do with the success he's had. Uh, he was my catcher back in the day, so B. Lamb, good luck in the regional this upcoming weekend. Uh, Lambert is hitting 290 on the year with eight home runs, and he is second on the team with 50 RBIs. And then the power hitter for the Green Waves is Teo Banks. He's hitting 303. He has 18 home runs, so that's nothing to be sneezed at. That is a ton of home runs for Teo Banks, but he has a lot of swing and miss as well as he has uh, 74 Ks, which is a ton. I think Jared Jones leads LSU in Ks, and he's right at about 60. So Teo Banks, 18 home runs, 74 Ks, but he does lead the Green Wave not only in home runs, but also RBIs with 51. In terms of their key pitchers, this is who I think they're going to start on Friday. I think it's going to see former U-high product, left-handed pitcher, Dylan Carmouche. Now look, Carmouche is a – he also coached against him when he was very, very little. Carmouche is a big dude. He's about 6'5". He's going to have a low – 90s fastball, and he's got kind of an unorthodox delivery, um, a good pickoff move to first, and kind of a funky arm angle. So it's going to take LSU a little while to get used to um, his delivery and his release point. Carmouche comes into the box. He is 5-8 and eight on the year with a 5.44 ERA. He has started 15 games for Tulane this year, 86 innings pitched, 94 hits. So he has a 281 batting average against, which is pretty high. But in those 86 innings pitch, he does have 100K. So he definitely has swing and miss stuff and only 38 walks. So he's got the chance to really um, – we saw LSU have trouble with the two lefties from Arkansas. They had some troubles with the uh, two lefties from Texas A&M as well. So <clears throat> if I'm the head coach for Tulane, I'm rolling out uh, my best pitcher who is left-handed on Friday afternoon to see what he can do against his vaunted LSU lineup. Carmouche's last outing versus Memphis in the AAC tournament, he went eight innings pitched, three hits, two runs, three walks, and nine Ks in 108 pitches. So really impressive performance when the Green Wave needed it. But then, get this, Carmouche comes back two days later after throwing 108 pitches, and he throws another 52 pitches in the AAC tournament versus ECU. And no, he does not get lit up. He goes three innings pitched, one hit, two walks, and three Ks. So the dude has got a rubber arm, and he left it all out there on the field for his teammates as they needed all of his outs to get into this regional. Another starting pitcher who you could see, but I would imagine they will save him for game two, is right-handed pitcher Ricky Castro, a transfer from Purdue. Castro is 4-6 and six on the year with a 5.14 ERA. In 82 and a third innings pitch, Castro has given up 96 hits. Uh, 83 Ks, which is good, not quite as good as Carmouche is 100 Ks, and he does have a high batting average against at 288. When you look at the bullpen, I think there are really two main arms I'm going to highlight. One of them is ex LSU player and transfer Michael Fowler. 
So in the year, Fowler has a 5.76 ERA. He's 0-3, but he does have 29 appearances. He has thrown um, 29 and a third innings pitched, excuse me, 29 two-thirds innings pitched, 56 K. So that is really, really impressive by the former LSU pitcher, Fowler, who's now throwing the pill for Tulane. Man, 56 Ks and 29 two-thirds innings pitched. That is very impressive. 24 walks. So about a, a little over, um, right about three to one strikeout to walk ratio and a 241 batting average against for Fowler. So I'm sure he wouldn't mind looking to get some payback against some of his former teammates. And also another bullpen arm to watch out for is Michael Lombardi. 20 appearances with a 6.66 ERA. Four saves, though, for him. 25 and two-thirds innings pitched with 26 Ks, and he has a very nice 174 batting average against, okay? So that wraps it up for Tulane. you got to watch out for the Catholic high product, uh, Brady Abair and, and Brandon Lambert. you got to watch out for the power of Teo Banks. And in terms of Carmouche, LSU's going to have to figure him out quick. The last thing they want, because he can go deep in the games, and that guy will be able to throw 120 pitches if the Greenway need, Green need him to on Friday afternoon. But Carmouche cannot still be in the game in the seventh inning. That spells bad news for the Tigers. And then I wouldn't be surprised to see, if it's close enough, Michael Fowler, the ex-LSU product, the transfer, come in there and try to get some of his former teammates out to keep the game close for Tulane. All right, moving on to the three seed, the Sam Houston State Bearcats. If that team sounds familiar, that's because LSU played them earlier in the year, the second weekend of the year in the Round Rock Classic in Austin, and LSU beat those guys 16-4. to Coming into the Baton Rouge Regional, Sam Houston is 28-23 and overall. They went 22-8 and in the WAC, so the Western Athletic Conference. They finished second behind Grand Canyon, and Sam Houston – Ended up winning the WAC Conference Tournament, but coming out of the loser's bracket just as Tulane did, and they won four games in a row. When you look at some of their team stats, the Bearcats had an RPI of 70. They are hitting 320 as a team, which is 10th in the country. They are number one in the country in terms of total hits. The Bearcats have 702 hits on the year. By comparison, LSU has 604. So Sam Houston has a hundred, roughly 100 more hits than LSU does on the year. Sam Houston is fifth in the country in doubles. They are 11th in the country in scoring at 8.6 runs per game. And not only can they hit, they run as well. They have 98 stolen bases on the year, and they have five guys with double-digit stolen bases. So not only can they hit, they have some pop, but when they get on base, they're looking to create a little chaos, a little havoc, and they're going to, you know um, – you know, mess it, mess it up on the base pass to look to um, make those pitchers uncomfortable. When you look at their strikeouts to walk ratio in terms of the hitters, Sam Houston, they don't look to walk and they don't strike out a lot. Those guys look to put the ball in play, so they're going to be aggressive. They don't swing and miss a ton, okay? LSU has roughly 80 more walks as a team than Sam Houston does. So if they do happen to beat Oregon State in the first game, and I don't know who LSU is going to throw in game two. We're going to get into that later in terms of my predictions. But with a team is that aggressive, look, all you have to do is stay down in the zone and make your pitches. I know it's kind of easier said than done because those guys can swing it, okay? But they're going to help you get out by how aggressive they are. That's just their game plan. That's just how they're built. They're not going to change now. Let's get into some of their key hitters. Yes, they have a dude that actually hits the ball better or hits for a higher average, should I say, than Dylan Cruz. And that guy is Tyler Davis. He is 
he has the third highest batting average in the country at 432. Davis also has 59 RBIs, which is second on the team. He has 13 stolen bases, which leads the team, and he has an on-base percentage of 502. So Davis, right at the top of that order, the complete package, hits for average, and he can run, and he can drive in runs as well. Backing him up is going to be Joe Redfield. And oh, by the way, he hits for an over 400 average as well. Redfield comes into the regional hitting at a 408 clip, 13 home runs for Redfield. So he's got some pop as well, which leads the team 51 RBIs. And oh, by the way, he can run as well. He has 15 stolen bases on the year. Moving on, you have Walter Janik hitting at 306. He has 12 home runs and he leads the team with 65 RBIs and 10 stolen bases. And then rounding out the guys you need to watch out for from Sam Houston is Clayton Chadwick, who's hitting at a 304 clip with 10 home runs and 48 RBIs. Now, the one guy I failed to mention, and this was interesting to me because last year, this guy I'm getting ready to mention was the, one of the best hitters in the country. Hit for over um, 400. I think he was a Golden Spike semifinalist, but he has just had a down year. Uh, I don't know if he's had injuries, but looking at his, his at-bats and his games played and games started, he's played in almost every game. But that is Carlos Contreras. He's hitting 271, and um, he's going to hit towards the bottom of that order. But that is somebody, if I'm LSU or whoever it may be, if you're Oregon State, you can't overlook that guy because he's proven in the past that he can absolutely swing it. I don't know what's going on with the young man this year, but he's having uh, he's well off his pace from last year. So Tyler Davis hits – uh, his average is 432. Watch out for him. Joe Redfield, 408, leads the team with 13 home runs. Walter Janik, as well, leads the team in RBIs. And then finally, Clayton Chadwick. In terms of their pitchers, this is where Sam Houston falls a little short compared to LSU and Oregon State. as uh, They can swing it with anybody in the country, one through nine. And they've proven that this year. But uh, their arms are just a little different, right? Not a lot of power arms, not a lot of strikeouts when you look at their stats. If LSU does face them in game two, I think the two main guys that LSU could see would be first, shocker, left-handed pitcher Stephen Beard, who is 7-3 on the year and 15 games started. He has a 5.35 ERA, 79 innings pitched, 89 hits. So above that one-to-one hit-to-innings uh, pitched ratio that we like to look at, 21 walks, which is impressive, and 79 innings pitched, but only 54 Ks. So right then and there, that tells you he's a crafty lefty, right? He's probably not pumping 92 in there. He's going to have a good changeup or a good breaking ball and really look to keep hitters off balance. He is at 290 batting average against, which is extremely high. So um, if LSU has to face him, he's, he's not going to be the Hagen Smith who's going to be throwing mid-90s. He's just really going to test the patience and the plan that the LSU hitters have to stick with to try to uh, get balls up in the zone and to put barrel on ball and to get him out the game as soon as possible. Now, when I looked at Beard and I looked at some of the box scores, his last outing was bad in the conference tournament. He started and went two-thirds of an innings pitched, two-thirds innings pitched, six hits, seven runs, seven earned. So that's atrocious. But that was actually the uh, second game. He started in the conference tournament. So you saw him start the opening game for Sam Houston. He threw well, which was he threw, started the opening game on Wednesday, and then he came back again and threw a second game in the tournament and got shelled. So you saw that with Tulane as they brought back Carmouche, and you saw that with Sam Houston. And, oh, by the way, not only did that did they do that with their number one, 
they did that with their number two guy as well. And he has a right-handed pitcher, and his name is Colton Atkinson. And he is 9-4 and four on the year with a 4.09 ERA. Atkinson has thrown 81 in the third innings pitch, 78 hits, 22 walks, which is pretty impressive. But once again, only 69 Ks. So well below the strikeout to innings pitch ratio that we look for here on the podcast. He has a 245 batting average against. And um, just once again, another guy, even though he's from the right side, LSU, if they do happen to face him in the second game, we'll have to show a lot of patience with regards to Atkinson as well. He also started two games in the tournament. Look, I don't know what's going on over there. Maybe they don't have a ton of arms that they trust, or maybe once they fell into the loser's bracket, they went to those guys and say, look, we really need you. Are you good to go? And they say, yeah, put me in coach. I'll do the best I can. I'll empty the tank. So whatever works for those guys heading into the Baton Rouge Regional. But look, in the end, the Bearcats made it, and that's all that matters. In terms of the bullpen, I got three main guys I really want to highlight for Sam Houston, and two of them are left-handed. And these guys have some really impressive numbers. The first guy is Chandler David. He has 28 appearances on the year, which leads the team. He is 6-0. Very impressive by David with a 2.21 ERA, 53 innings pitch. So we look at the innings pitch and his ERA. There's some stout numbers right there. 68 Ks and 53 innings pitch, and he sports a 202 batting average against. So that's going to play in any conference. So Chandler David is definitely a stud for the Bearcats coming out the pen. They have left-handed pitcher Braden Davis with 22 appearances. He's 4-4 four and four on the year with a 3.16 ERA. He does have five saves, 37 innings pitched, 51K, so he's got swing and miss stuff as well. And then he has a 213 batting average against. So when you look at these two guys at the pin, much different statistics in terms of innings pitched to strikeouts and then batting average against compared to the starters Atkinson and Beard. And the last guy I want to – Highlight is left-handed pitcher Marshall Wales. He's kind of a swing guy for them. He has 17 appearances, but he does have eight games started, 48 innings pitched, and 37 Ks, and Mr. Wales is left-handed as well. So I would imagine in the first game, if the starters start to falter, I would I would think, look, you lose two games and you go home. Your season ends, right? Chandler David and Braden Davis will be called on early if they need to to face Oregon State. And I would imagine they will stick with that game plan in game two, whoever they face, whether it be LSU or Tulane. So those guys in the pen are very, very impressive to me. All right, moving on to the two seed, the Oregon State Beavers out of the Pac-12. The Beavs went 39-18. and They finished second in the Pac-12 this year behind Stanford with an 18-12 and record. They went 0-2 in the Pac-12 tournament at one time a couple weeks ago. Oregon State was being discussed um, as a host site, but they kind of faltered a little bit at the end of the year. And lo and behold, they find themselves traveling across the country to Baton Rouge. Oregon State comes in with an RPI of 37. When you look at their key statistics in terms of hitting, they're hitting 290 as a team with 79 home runs. I believe they set the record this year for the most home runs hit by an Oregon State team. So not your typical uh, West Coast team that you like to think of, right? Going to have the ERA in the upper ones or the low twos. They're going to hit 250 as a team. They're going to look to bunt and get them over. This is not that Oregon State team. So please do not go thinking that, okay? These guys have some serious pop, and we'll get into those guys in a second. So they hit 290 as a team, 79 home runs. They like to run as well, just like Sam Houston, okay? 89 stolen bases on the year, but it's really only two guys, and I'm going to highlight those guys in a second that steal bags for them. 
They average eight-point runs per game. They are fifth in the country in terms of walks, so very similar to LSU. They don't strike out a lot. They will look to take the walk, while LSU is ninth if you want a comparison. So Oregon State fifth, LSU ninth in terms of walks taken as a team. When I look at them, and I'm going to highlight some of their pitching statistics in a second, they don't really do anything amazing, right? They just do everything good. That's what they are. Oregon State is a very good baseball team. And I was trying to think of a comparison in the SEC, and I came up with Alabama. Alabama had a good lineup, one through nine, had some seasoned guys in that lineup. And then Alabama had good pitching, right, with two or three guys in the bullpen. They were young arms, but they were very good. But they had three or four starters that Alabama could have run at you, and they were going to keep you in the game. They were tops in the SEC in terms of pitching and ERA and all those stats. So I liken Oregon State to an Alabama, okay? Just very, very solid. Nothing may jump off the page at you, but all those guys are going to be good, and they're going to be a tough out in this regional. In terms of pitching, they have a 4.65 team ERA. Um, they have a 252 batting average against, so slightly higher than LSU. They strike out a, a little bit over one hitter per innings pitch, so not nearly the amount that LSU does. They've struck out um, 545 in the 507. 507 and a third innings pitches that staff has this year. They do not walk opposing hitters, though, only 209, while LSU has 232. Okay, guys with good stuff, but they're going to pound the zone and make the opposing team put the ball in play. In terms of fielding, they are by far and away the best fielding team in this regional. They are fielding at a 981 clip as a team, which is good for ninth in the country. So they're not going to beat themselves, but they do play on turf up there. I don't know how big of a deal that is, but you're seeing more and more teams around the country go to turf. So playing this regional all on grass and dirt, we'll see if that has an effect on the Oregon State fielders moving forward. All right, let's focus in on a couple of these hitters, and I'll probably highlight a few more arms than I have with um, Tulane and Sam Houston previously. If LSU happens to face Oregon State in game two, assuming both LSU and Oregon State win, they absolutely have to control these four guys, and especially the guy that's leading the game off, okay? And that's going to be Travis Bazana, first team, all Pac-12. He is an absolute stud, plain and simple. If he was on this team, he would start in some type of capacity. He is too good not to be playing, okay? Bazana, he leads their team in batting average at 379. He has 10 home runs. 53 RBIs, which leads the team. 36 stolen bases, which obviously leads the team, and that is top 10 in the country, okay? So hits for average, hits for power, and he can roll. I think he plays second base for these guys as well, and he's going to lead the game off. He also walks a ton, so think Dylan Cruz. Bazana has 59 walks on the year and 41 Ks. He is a stud. You cannot let this guy get going. You have to try to find a way to keep him off the base pass. Base pass, excuse me. Another guy you got to keep off base is Micah McDowell. He's going to hit second or third. It looks like he's been hitting third a lot lately. Left-handed hitting outfielder. He's hitting three or forty-three on the year. Not not a ton of pop. He's got six home runs. He has fifteen stolen bases. Look. So between Bazana and McDowell, those guys have like uh, two-thirds of the stolen bases as a team. Everybody else runs a little bit, meaning like four or five or six stolen bases. I'm not really worried about those two guys. The other guys, I'm worried about Bazana and McDowell. 
Another guy you have to watch out for, also a first-team All-Pac-12 selection, is Garrett Forrester. Looking at the box scores, he's going to hit in the two-hole right behind Bazana. He's hitting 330 on the year with 10 home runs and 52 RBIs. He also has a lot of walks, and he has walked 56 times on the year, has Forrester. So you got Bazana, McDowell, Forrester, and then finally the big power guy, Mason Guerra. He leads the team with 11 home runs and 54 RBIs. He definitely has some swing and miss, though, in his game as he has 55 Ks on the year. Two other guys to watch out for are Casper and Turley. I believe Turley is a freshman. They each have 10 home runs, but they have a ton of swing and miss in their game as well. They each have over 50 strikeouts between them. So Guerra, ton of pop. He will punch out, as will Casper and Turley. Pizana, a stud. McDowell, and then you got Forrester, who's very solid who walks and has pop as well. So you can see that's why I compared them to Alabama. Right there, I just mentioned six dudes. So they have a ton of depth in their lineup, okay? One of the best conferences in the country. The Pac-12 was very even this year. So they've seen it all, okay? They've seen the best pitchers from Stanford and Oregon and Washington and everything those guys have to offer. So they won't be intimidated by coming into Tiger Stadium. Excuse me, Alec Box Stadium. But maybe uh, the weather and the time can get to them a little bit. So a very solid team. Now, when you look at their pitchers, I'm going to highlight a couple guys. They have two really, really good starters that stood out to me. And I would imagine if LSU and Oregon State both win their games, then um, they're going to face one of these two guys. As right-handed pitcher Trent Sellers, 14 games started. He is 6-5 and five on the year with a 5.13 ERA, 66 and two-thirds innings pitch, 68 hits, 101 Ks, so very impressive. 66 and two-thirds innings pitch with 101 Ks. 31 walks. He has a 257 batting average against. When you look at Sellers, he is fourth in the country at strikeouts per nine innings pitch. Skeens is first. So a ton of swing and miss for Sellers. So the question is, do they roll the dice and save him for game two? But I'm thinking you got a, you got a really, really good hitting team in Sam Houston. I'm going to send my guy that can punch guys out, the guys that have swing and miss stuff. I'm going to roll Sellers out there game one because when I look at the number two guy, or uh, who I consider the number two, is right-handed pitcher Jacob Kamatz. 14 games started. He's 5-4 and four with a point, 4.71 ERA. Now, 72 and two-thirds inning pitch for Kamatz, 72 hits. But you look at his strikeout-to-walk ratio, 26 walks, which isn't bad in 72 innings pitch, but he only has 61 Ks. So he's a contact guy. I'm sure he relies a lot on that turf for some of those clean hops, Okay. And um, they have some big ballparks in the Pac-12 as well. I don't want a guy who doesn't strike out one hitter per innings pitch to go up against um, Sam Houston, a team that doesn't strike out. They look to put the ball in play and a team that's going to be raring to hit. And Kamatz is a 258 batting average against. But I want to throw my stud, the guy who can punch people out, I would probably start Sellers against Sam Houston. Another guy that could start in game two for the Beavers is A.J. Lattery. Eight games started in 17 appearances. Um, he's kind of been their number three as of late, it looks like. He's 4-0 with a 4.09 ERA, 44 innings pitched, 37 hits, 48 Ks, and 20 walks. So Sellers, Kamatz, and Lattery are really the three main starters that I see Oregon State rolling out there their weekend. Now, they do have a swing guy they could use in their bullpen guy. And his name, they have several, but the swing guy could be right-handed pitcher Ben Ferrer with 19 appearances and a 4.39 ERA. He's 2-1, so in his 19 appearances, though, he has 41 innings pitched, so obviously he can stretch out, and he has 47 Ks to go along with um, 
the 41 innings pitched. They have one or two lefties that you could see. But when you look at their closer, he is a stud. Ryan Brown, he has 10 saves on the year, 23 appearances. He's 4-2. He's got a 3.45 ERA. So 23 appearances, 28 and two-thirds. So when he comes in, he's coming in to slam the door, probably inning two at absolute max, okay? He has only five walks in 28 and two-thirds innings pitch, so he's going to pound the zone exactly what you look for in a closer and 31 Ks in those 28 and two-thirds innings pitched. Another guy with a funky delivery is right-handed pitcher A.J. Hutchinson. 24 appearances, which lead the Oregon State Beavers, 3.64 ERA, and he has 25 Ks in 29 and two-thirds innings pitched. So I think Sellers for them probably goes game one against Sam Houston, the big strikeout guy. I don't know if they're going to throw Kamat since he looks like he's a pitch-to-contact guy against LSU in that potent lineup. Maybe they switch it up. Maybe they use an opener like one of their bullpen guys like Ben Ferrer. But they have two lockdown dudes in the bullpen, and that's closer Ryan Brown and then sidearm righty A.J. Hutchinson. All right, so that's going to do it for the team capsules. So let me get into my predictions. And I gave you a teaser early on, and let me know. And I'm going to tell you where my head's at. So let me know in the comments or holler at me on Twitter. I've listened to podcasts about what I think. And this little section right here is just going to wrap it up here for the 60 feet, 6 inches LSU pod, the regional opponent preview. Okay. One of the things y'all got to realize about these regionals, they're always tough to predict. And my keys to the weekend are going to kind of be rolled in here as one. Okay. Players are very acutely aware at this time of year that their season is over once they lose two games. For Tulane and Sam Houston, they were made aware of that when they dropped into the loser's bracket in their conference tournaments. Therefore, guys can play above their heads, both hitters and pitchers. Okay, The hitters can see it better. They may not swing at pitches that they did swing at the whole year. All of a sudden, they're laying off curveballs in the dirt. Okay, The pitchers may throw it better. Maybe they haven't had a curveball for a strike all year, then all of a sudden they find one. And as a reliever, all of a sudden he gets hot and he goes two or three appearances and he is rolling right now and his confidence is sky high. When you look at the two-lane factor, who LSU opens up with Friday at 2 o'clock, they have several local guys, like I mentioned. You have Brendan Lambert, Brady Abair, both from Catholic, Dylan Carmouche, who I think is going to start game one from U High. Okay, They're going to play with a ton of pride, a ton of adrenaline in this Baton Rouge regional against LSU. Tulane is playing with house money, baby. They have nothing to lose. They just won their conference tournament. Their confidence is sky high. They will be playing absolutely pressure-free on Friday. They will be playing free and loose in that dugout, which is very dangerous if you are LSU. With Carmouche on the mound, who, as I mentioned, is my prediction, he's going to be tough. Okay, a big lefty, low 90s. He's got swing and miss stuff and kind of a funky arm slot, a funky delivery. LSU fans, I'm telling you now, do not be shocked if the score is 1-0 Tulane or 0-0 heading into the fourth inning Friday afternoon at 2.30. Okay, sometimes it just takes a little while to get the nerves out the way, to settle down and play baseball in a regional setting. In my opinion, I think if LSU beats Tulane, although I think it's going to maybe take a little longer than most people want, okay, I would start Thatcher Hurd in game one. That is my opinion. Initially, a couple weeks ago, I would have said Javen Coleman, but I just don't know how far he can get you. And with the way Thatcher Hurd is throwing right now, I think Thatcher Hurd can get you to the fifth, which is going to be the goal. I'm going to start Thatcher Hurd in game one. It is imperative for her to get off to a clean start, keep the momentum and the energy on LSU side with the home crowd behind them, even though it's a day game, okay, and keep that sucker out of the Tulane dugout. The last thing you want is those dudes jumping around, thinking they can shock the world, 
okay, by beating the number five seed and then her struggling early on in that game. If Jay does decide for some unexplained reason to go with Paul Skeens, I've heard that bantered around a little bit, uh, Twitter or, or DMs I've gotten, you know, and that is something I completely disagree with at this point in time. That could potentially cost LSU a chance in the regional, and I'll explain a little bit later on, okay? I think LSU beats Tulane. I think you go with that, you're heard. You try to get five to six out of him. I think it's silly to think you only leave him out there for three. What if it's zero, zero? Then you got to rely on that pin. That is not something I want to go to early in a regional when you could be playing up to four games, okay? You do not want to blow the pin out early. I throw Hurd out there. I let him go as long as he possibly can. Hopefully that's into the fifth or sixth, depending on uh, what the score is at that time. And you just burn him for the regional. If LSU wins game one, which I think they will, Game two in a regional is the most important game. It's the marble game. If you win game two, somebody's got to beat you twice. Okay, they got to beat you Sunday. They got to beat you Monday. In that scenario, I want the best pitcher in the country throwing in the most important game of the season up until that point. I want Paul Skeens throwing in that game. And then I save Ty Floyd for game three, either to save LSU's season or to take them to a Super Regionals. I just have that much confidence in the way Ty Floyd is throwing right now. In terms of the LSU hitters, they must come out with a sense of urgency from pitch one Friday afternoon at 2.01. They need to lock in and they need to do something that they've done all year. They just didn't get it done in Hoover. They need to drive in runs with runners in scoring position. They need to find a way to get a big, get a big two-out hit to break the game open. Okay. They can't go four or five innings and just throw up a bunch of zeros. They need to constantly apply pressure this entire regional, all right? In terms of schemes, throwing game two, I think he's going to have to revert back to the Kentucky schemes, and this is what I mean. When you saw schemes throw against Kentucky, in the first couple innings, they were on his fastball. He really got hit around that game, if you remember. So then what you saw him do, he went to about 60 to 70% breaking balls, so he pitched backwards, okay? He was starting guys off with breaking balls, finishing them with fastballs, or if they couldn't sniff his breaking ball, he would just keep throwing it. So that's who I think – I think Skeens is going to revert – have to revert back to that in terms of pitching to throw Sam Houston or Oregon State off their game plan. I just think if you're a team that's never seen Skeens before, you're going to do like Arkansas did, right? You're going to hunt the fastball 98 to 101. You're going to ditch the breaking ball to there's two strikes, and you're going to hope your guys get their foot down and get the barrel to the ball and just see what happens. Okay, just like Arkansas did. If you've never seen schemes before, that's got to be the game plan. So I think for them, and he's had a tendency to leave balls over the middle and guys can barrel it up. Okay, and Oregon State's got some guys and obviously Sam Houston with that lineup. So these guys can hit the fastball. I think he's going to pitch backwards. Cruz and Dugas, another key. They need to get it going this regional. Okay. The lineup, it just feels like it's been off since Dugas got hurt, and I think he is still hurt right now. And I think, obviously, Cruz is going into a little bit of a slide. He's still hitting over 400. He just hasn't been as consistent as he was earlier in the year in terms of game-to-game or A-B-to-A-B or series-to-series since the Auburn series. I'm going to put this out there. You can disagree with me. I do not like Cruz hitting leadoff. I don't think his outs are as productive. I also think he's more aggressive hitting leadoff. In his five games that he's hit leadoff, he has seven Ks and two walks. If I'm a pitcher and I have to face Dylan Cruz, 
I sure as hell want to face Dylan Cruz, the first hitter of the game, as opposed to when he has one or two men on base. Then it gets scary. Then I'm out to stretch, okay? As a leadoff guy, he hasn't seen me throw anything except my warm-up pitches, so he doesn't really have his timing down. And you really have seen Cruz attack the first couple pitches. So as a pitcher, I know he can run it out the yard, but I'll take that chance. If he wants to swing at the first or second pitch of the game, even though he's Dylan Cruz, if I'm an opposing pitcher, have at it. If that means it's one out, I'm smiling from ear to ear. That's why I don't like him hitting leadoff. I just don't think it's outs are productive. They don't move anybody over. A solo home run is a solo home run. That doesn't bother me if I'm the starting pitcher in the first. I just rather see him in the two or the three hole moving forward. I want Pearson in the lineup. I want Beloso in the lineup as well. But that may change with regard to some things if you have to DH um, Beloso. And then if Pearson and Joe Bear in the outfield, that means Morgan moves to first. Then it just depends on who's catching. But I like Beloso. I really want Pearson. I would love to see him lead off and hit in front of Cruz. And then um, in my personal opinion, okay? I think the pin is throwing better. In terms of the pin, I trust four guys. Cooper, Ackenhausen, Gidry, Herring, and then Coleman, whatever his role is. I have some confidence in him as well. So the keys to the regional, Cruz and Dugas, they got to get going or stay consistent for these three games. The starters, in terms of the pitchers, Hurd, Skeens, uh, Ty Floyd, they, get off, they have to get off to a good start, right? Have a clean first time through the order. So that's three innings. Have a clean first three innings. Let everybody get settled in. Let them get their nerves out the way so then they can realize it's just another baseball game. And then finally, the hitters, they have to have a sense of urgency from the first pitch to the last pitch, but really early on in the game when these opposing pitchers are trying to find their release points, get used to the crowd, get used to the field as well. So my predictions, I think LSU beats Tulane. I think Oregon State beats Sam Houston. I think that game is much closer than people think in the nightcap on Friday. I think Sam Houston beats Tulane on Saturday in that third game, and Tulane takes a short trip home. I think LSU beats Oregon State in a very, very tight, close Good college baseball game. I think Skeens is going to throw very well. And, um, you know, he's going to put Hoover behind him when he threw it through just kind of so-so. I think Sam Houston State beats Oregon State in the elimination game. Oregon State, I think, is a better team than them. But Sam Houston can slug it out with the best of them. By then, their pitching will probably be a little thin. And I just think maybe Oregon State wilts in the heat, wilts in the time difference. And their run comes to an end as Sam Houston surprised those guys in just a slugfest, right? Like a 15 to 12 type of game. I know Oregon State can swing it as well. But in regionals, weird things happen, so I'm calling for the upset. And then I have LSU absolutely boat racing Sam Houston to punch their ticket to the Super Regionals. And oh, by the way, I think LSU hosts West Virginia in the Super Regionals in Baton Rouge. Not this weekend, but next weekend. So that's my prediction. LSU beating Sam Houston in the regional final, then hosting the Mountaineers of the Big 12 in the Super Regional. As always, thank you guys for tuning in. I appreciate all the love and the support this year on the 60 Feet 6 Inches podcast. Like, subscribe, comment to the YouTube video. Make sure to check me out on Twitter. And as always, this podcast can be found on all major audio platforms. So until next time, y'all please stay safe out there. And as always, go Tigers.